1: listening to Quick to Listen, the Christianity Today podcast where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I'm Caitlin Beatty, the print managing editor here at CT, and I'm joined by Morgan Lee, assistant editor. Hey, Morgan, what's up? How's it going,
0: Caitlin? It's going well. I just came back from lunch with a board member of ours, Sam Mm. Rodriguez, who was addressing our office earlier today, and then I'm a member of the Culture, Diversity, and Innovation Task Force here at CT, and we had a very dynamic lunch with him after yeah. the dynamic <laughs> Q&A this morning.
1: Yes, I can only imagine that it was dynamic. We Before Sam Rodriguez got here, we actually wondered if our room that we were meeting in would be able to contain his energy and charisma, and it barely did. So we were super grateful for his comments about the Latino church and the political agenda set before Christians and the political vision that he set forth. So what did y'all talk about at lunch? So one
0: of Sam's things that he addressed today was he called himself a Baptocostal. And I think that kind of speaks to his vision in the world, which is about unity, bringing things together, reconciling things. And he talked a lot about how unity is very important for him and how there's been times in his life where he's felt God has convicted him of being overly aligned with one faction or another, but he really wants to do the job of bringing the church together, which he thinks is like one of its strongest witnesses. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like you can just, like, sense his heart for that when he's talking about whether it's, like, him preaching the same sermon, just in different contexts, Mm -hmm. but kind of trying to preserve the integrity, you know, and and show that the churches can come together on these things.
1: Yeah, and that's why he's a great person to have connected to CT, because we often— want to do that as well on issues that divide the American and the American church and beyond. We want to be a voice that unites rather than divides, which is a great segue into this week's particular topic. So who do we have with us this week?
0: So just a little background. This week, we're going to be talking about a Bible translation, which is the English Standard Version, and their recent news that they are done come you know basically doing updates to the translation and it's going to be set as is and so kind of to unpack what that actually means we've invited Craig Blomberg who is a professor at Denver Seminary he is- basically is a distinguished professor of New Testament. He has written a book called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and he also wrote a book called Can We Still Believe the Bible, which also spent an entire chapter on Bible translation. Craig, hey, how are you doing?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm doing well.
0: One question or something I'd like you to share a little bit with our listeners is you've actually done a lot of different work with specific Bible translations. Can you tell us more about that?
2: I've been very privileged to be a part of the 90 scholar team that uh, produced the New Living Translation uh, back in the 1990s. And then uh, in uh, a second tier of consultants that uh, reviewed individual books of the New Testament for both the ESV that you're talking about today and uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And then since 2008, I have been invited to be a part of the Committee on Bible Translation for the New International Versions.
1: Which is just one of the many reasons you are a great person to have on our show today. I think a lot of our listeners, you know, are aware that there are many... Bible translations out there, but don't know exactly the process of how these translations come to be. And specifically with this English Standard Version, which Crossway, the publisher, has announced will basically be a permanent text edition. It will remain as is in perpetuity. There are questions about why a publisher would do that. Crossway publishes a lot of complementarian theology. Some critics have read kind of a complementarian agenda into some of the Textual changes that they did make.
0: Can I ask you really quickly just to give people what complementarian means?
1: Oh, sure. Oh, gosh. There are Christians out there that (laughs) are less familiar with this terminology. You know, let's ask the biblical scholar on hand to define complementarianism in 30 seconds. Are you up for that, Craig?
2: Uh, Hopefully, I can do it in less. Okay. Um, It's a collection of perspectives that is the opposite of egalitarian that believes that to some degree, men and women do not have uh, access uh, or should not occupy the same roles in uh, either the church or the home, that the highest authority is reserved for the man, but that they complement each other in ways that uh, do not compromise their uh, fundamental equality before God.
1: I can't really improve upon that. So... So let's get a gut check first. So this was a story that we reported on last week on our website, actually got a lot of response and feedback. Our readers, will not surprise our listeners, care a lot about the Bible and Bible translation. So first, let's get a gut check out on the table. When you heard about this story, Morgan, what was your first reaction?
0: My first reaction was, what does it mean? (laughs) (laughs) And what I mean by that is, what is the significance of saying that you're not going to continue to do revisions on a specific bible translation is is this a good thing is this a bad thing you know is it just saying like you know what we can't work on this project forever as a result we just had to cut it off at some point, you know, like that, you know, and (laughs) just kind of acknowledging that like, it's just going to stand as it is and maybe our resources have to go other places, but trying to sift through the Bible and look through verses is not going to be where we're prioritizing resources. Or are they trying to make a larger theological statement about where they are? As we know, there's been so many, at least in English, right? There's been so many different Bible translations over the years and they all kind of try to have their different like focuses and aims and things that they bring out or amplify or diminish and I, it got me curious about all the different reasons why we have those translations, what the intention was, and, and kind of like what the ESV team was going through here.
1: Yeah, my gut check was I had a very, you know, unfortunately, I think my first response was a little bit of suspicion and because of the ways that Bible publishers and Bible translations are so often tied up with certain camps of the church and certain tribes of the church and tribes wanting to stake their particular claims on the text of Scripture. So sadly, my question was, like, what's the agenda behind this? Hmm. But I also say that recognizing that I really like the ESV translation and have used it for personal meditation and study for the past couple of years. um, So it's not about the text itself. It's really about the people behind the text.
0: Do you want to just clarify maybe which quote-unquote camp or religiously affiliated group normally uses
1: the ESV? I mean, honestly, I think it's used by a variety of evangelicals, probably those who tend to be more conservative theologically and those who are sympathetic to a complementarian View, but that's not. I've that's, seen it in a lot
0: of reform contexts as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, but even I mean, I go to kind of an evangelical Anglican church, and we use the ESV translation in our in our worship.
2: I uh, am not in communication with anybody at Crossway at the moment, so I can't uh, speak for any official or unofficial uh, purpose that they may have. Uh, I can make some informed speculation. The ESV is uh, produced by uh, a publisher and the men on the committee, uh, many of whom I know, are of the mindset that they want to foster confidence in the Bible as God's Word. I don't know to what extent the Word has gotten around the media, publishers, the general public, but when the ESV was first created, the uh, committee continued to meet on a regular basis, as do other Bible translation committees at times, and made a number of comparatively minor changes and updates and what they believed were uh, improved translations to various passages, and then simply introduced them in the uh, new printings uh, without any publicity or any fanfare, not that they were creating a, a 2.0 uh, like the New Living Translation did. They weren't uh, saying this is our, our new edition like the 2011 NIV. And so it's very possible that word has spread somewhat that here here are these changes, but they're not telling anybody that these changes are being introduced. What's going on? And so they're trying to say, well, we didn't change anything major, and we're going to stop doing it now, and we're going to uh, keep what we have. This is probably as good as it's going to get, and so uh, we don't want you worrying that uh, the unchanging Word of God is going to continue to change.
1: So yeah, the, the report that we that we went live with last week noted that there were updates to 29 verses, and they were Minor word changes here and there that the translation team believes captures the word for word meaning of the texts. There's a little bit of humor in saying we're going to stop changing things so that it's un we we all can confirm that this is unchanging because you're declaring that after having made all these changes to the text, so help us understand that tension
2: well i I agree with you um. <laughs> Not not only is there a little bit of irony in in making not just these uh, this recent round that that was comparatively minor, but several other rounds uh, in which uh, they did set limits on the number of changes that could be introduced each time, but they were certainly uh, more extensive than uh, this latest round. And so it, it it is a bit well, I might almost say, disingenuous to say that we've now arrived at. A stage where uh, a fallible uh, group of human translators uh, will not have uh, at any point in the future a uh, better idea as to uh, how to render something. And of course, committees uh, change over the years as people retire and are replaced by others. And a, a different collection of translators, even sharing the same general values, will inevitably uh, have different and or better ideas about how to, to render individual passages.
0: Would you say that it's appropriate, though, just to provide a different perspective here, you know, that this is the final version of the ESV, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't close the door to there being other translations, right? And it doesn't say that the ESV is the only translation. Maybe it's just shutting the door and completing a project, not trying to make it a declarative statement about the Bible.
2: Had the idea from the outset been to uh, complete a project in this fashion, uh, I think that could uh, certainly be the case. Uh, It's been my understanding from friends on the committee that the original idea was to have periodic, ongoing updates. And so from that point of view, it does seem to be a change in direction potentially in response to some criticism from the very conservative people who don't completely understand the process of uh, Bible translation by committee. It it does seem uh, to somebody who is now outside of the process like uh, they're trying to make a modern translation be more than it ever can be, which is simply... uh, as good a translation as one group of people can make at one point in time.
1: I can imagine some very conservative listeners, the kind that you maybe just described, hearing that and saying, well, wait a minute, we believe that the Word of God is infallible. Many, many people would use the language of inerrancy. How does a commitment to that belief in the authority of Scripture and of the Word of God work alongside the reality that we have fallible humans translating the original texts and have been translating the original texts over time.
2: The vast majority of uh, Christian statements that have been made over the centuries have regularly said that what we believe is inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative are the original texts, the original manuscripts in the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And uh, it has really only been a very tiny minority in the history of the church represented today, notably in the so-called King James Version Only movement that has tried to argue for infallible preservation of the text, which is simply impossible to do unless you uh ignore all the evidence and simply make a faith commitment that somewhere in the welter of manuscripts is one that has preserved it accurately but not even the King James version was based on a single manuscript so it's a it's a myth that can't actually be defended
1: in your perspective Craig is it correct to understand the theological significance of the ESV committee's announcement as being connected to the the theology of the infallibility of one translation of the Bible, and it happens to be theirs?
2: It's hard to be sure, because the men that I know on the committee would agree with Everything I just said, uh, they know that uh, they are affirming the infallibility, the inerrancy only of the original manuscripts in the original languages. I suspect it was more likely a decision made at at the level of the publishers, though I don't actually know that, to give the best possible spin to things. Uh, I am sure that is a desire to give ESV readers as much confidence as possible in uh, what they have in their hands. But assuming the the press release and the the story as you reported it is uh, not missing something important that we're not taking into account, uh, it it does seem very odd. It's it's not the type of thing you'd expect to see in uh, the 21st century with all that we know and understand about uh, the processes of translation. God is a genius
0: storyteller. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. You said two different words that I found super interesting in light of Bible translation. One word that you said publishers, and then the other term that you said was press release. And it just reminded me that Bible translation, in addition to being a, a way for further discipleship and spiritual formation, is also a business. And I'm wondering if you can speak to some of how business causes and concerns have a seat at the table, so to speak, when it comes to Bible translation.
2: Everybody uh, who uh, publishes wants to stay in business. I remember uh a gathering for the translators of the New Living Translation. A few years after it first came out, there was a a gathering that uh, Tyndale House in Wheaton put on, the publishers of the New Living Translation, and uh, uh, Mark Taylor, who was the president at that time, and and he had a wonderful relationship uh, with the the translation team, and he could say this with a chuckle, but he said... uh, what uh, is sponsoring this gathering? We were having a nice banquet. Is not merely the, in fact, not primarily the proceeds from the New Living Translation, but all of the record-setting proceeds from the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And there were a few boos from the audience. <laughs> oh no! In, in, in humor, because most of the translators would would say that's that's pretty horrible interpretation of, of the book of Revelation. <laughs> but, but that illustrates your point. If a Bible, if a Bible edition is a, a major moneymaker for a, a given publishing house, and the smaller the uh, publisher and the, the higher a percentage uh, of what they produce being editions of the Bible, then uh, understandably, they're going to want that to sell as, as best as they possibly can.
1: Yeah. And even beyond having so many specific translations based in, in in a lot of ways on kind of preference of reader, you also have the proliferation of different types of, of Bibles. You have your Bible for the carpenter, and you yes. have your Bible for the <laughs> full-time stay-at-home mom, and for the CEO, and for the Child age seven to nine, I mean we're seeing the a, a, a strong consumerist mentality also dictating the kinds of Bibles that get published and how the Bible text gets packaged for various audiences. And I'm sure the world we're in now it would have been very foreign to like the original the people who compose the original manuscripts.
2: I had a, a student a few years ago who was leading a Bible study in her neighborhood. I forget what they had been studying, but she said, the ladies would just love to take one hour to meet with you and, and ask a bunch of questions about stuff that I just don't feel as good in responding to. And I said, I'd love to do that. And we met, and this one Jewish woman who is not a believer, but... Uh, fairly savvy, at least on what we'd call the Old Testament, said exactly what you said. I don't understand all these these different editions. And then she went one step further. She said, if I'm going to create a golfer's Bible and a teenage sports car Bible and so forth, how in the world do you find things in the Bible relevant to all these people? And don't you have to go in and and make changes to the text hmm. and she had not actually uh, looked beyond the covers of these editions but she was under the impression that everyone was a different version and a different translation and it it took a while for me to to communicate the concept that no the text of the bible was identical in every one of them the different in fact they might all have been new international versions <laughs> but uh, the difference was simply the covers the packaging the footnotes, the sidebars, the illustrations, everything that was never in the original manuscripts. So it
1: sounds like, you know, we we all can agree there are certain drawbacks to having both so many translations of the Bible and then so many different versions of the Bible. But are there actually, are there good things about the fact that we have literally hundreds of translations of the Bible now available? Is this a positive thing for the global
2: church? I am sure that every translation or every packaging of a given translation that has made it to full publication has reached somebody somewhere that no other translation or no other packaging of a particular translation had ever previously reached. And if somebody reads the Bible uh, who wouldn't have read it otherwise, then Yes, it's worth doing. But in terms of global needs, uh, although we now do have uh, Bibles in languages uh, that can be read by, I've heard estimates, as high as 95 or 96 percent of the world's people, in many instances, those are not the first languages of those people, and there still is something very precious to be able to read a text that you believe is sacred in uh, your own mother tongue. Couldn't some of that energy be spent in not creating still more English translations, but translations in languages that don't have a Bible or updated translations in uh, languages where the only Bible they have is something equivalent to our King James from centuries ago in a, a now very archaic language?
1: Well, you're the first person I've ever talked to who's worked on... A, a translation, not just one, but several translation committees. So I'd love to get kind of an insider's look at these transla- how these translation committees work. Are these like drag-out meetings where people are yelling across the table about a certain Hebrew translation, or are you just opening the thesaurus? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Typically, we're not yelling, no, although as uh, some of the translators get into their 80s and are hard of hearing, if the the table is a long one and and people are are at opposite ends, uh, they they may have to raise their voices a little bit. Um, (laughs) Typically, uh, a committee is given uh, uh, homework well in advance of uh, a meeting, uh, a series of proposals, Perhaps they're organized uh, according to uh, the part of the Bible that they appear in. Perhaps they're organized according to topic. But uh, the scholars have months, ideally, ahead of time uh, to work through the uh, proposals. And then the committee will come together, often for several days at a time. Working uh, a committee for the NIV, for example, meets a a minimum of 40 hours every summer. And uh, we may have uh, 300 pages of proposals that we've worked through, and we may not get to everything. Uh, And then uh, people say, don't work so hard for next year coming up with new ideas uh, so we can catch up. And you proceed uh, proposal by proposal. The person who's made it may be invited briefly to uh, explain why, although typically you you write a brief rationale so people can understand your thinking. There's conversation for however long the the chair lets it go on, and then it's uh, time to vote. Uh, In the case of the NIV, No uh, proposal can be accepted that does not have at least a three-quarters majority vote, so it's not easy to uh, overturn something that uh, good people have thought long and hard about and and put there uh, in the past. If uh, the proposal is accepted, it it goes into a database of what will be included uh, the next time uh, there is a published revision of that Bible. If it does not pass, uh, and, of course, it's it's not included. And then you go on to the next proposal. And the format is pretty boring, but uh, the conversations can be quite interesting.
1: And everybody in the room is a biblical scholar.
2: In the NIV, everyone in the room is a biblical scholar, uh, except that because Zondervan and uh, Biblica, the International Bible Society, are the uh, co-sponsors, there will be times when representatives of one or the other of those groups will be present, but solely to listen and to observe. Now, as I understand it, the ESV is a little different because Lane Dennis, as the uh, the president of Crossway, uh, what I've been told is that he is a voting member of the committee, which is sort of an interesting situation uh, in, in my own mind, I would much prefer where uh, you have a committee that people from the publisher can give suggestions, they can make recommendations, but they cannot vote and participate in the conversation in a way to try to persuade people of of certain choices, uh, because those individuals are not biblical scholars.
0: Craig, do you know if the same process that you outlined right there is used or was used in the revisions that the ESV was making?
2: I would I would assume it would be very uh, very similar to that, yes.
1: Well, I think we can wrap up. Um, I know we probably have listeners who love the ESV and are really happy to know that it is going to be a permanent text edition from here on out. And I know we also have listeners who either don't know what the ESV is or know what it is and are troubled by some of the changes. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter at Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash podcast. So we have a special Precious Moments this week, naturally, about the Bible. I wanted to hear from Craig and Morgan what your favorite book of the Bible is. Knowing that you have read it front to back multiple times, what would you say your favorite book is, Craig?
2: It's hard for me to answer that question. I get asked it a lot. It's almost like saying which uh, tire of your car is the favorite. Um, I need all of them if it's going to run. But uh, one that maybe because it's from the Old Testament, which I don't teach through every year uh, in seminary like I do the New Testament, uh, that always intrigues and chants, challenges, frustrates me is the book of Esther just because of all of the intrigue. It's the one book in the Bible where God never appears by name, but the hand of providence is everywhere. Esther has to hide her Jewishness in order to save it and then disclose it at just the right time for such a time as this. I think it's a pretty neat book.
1: Can people find you online if they want to learn more about your scholarly
2: work? People can certainly uh, email me at the seminary. I don't have a a personal blog, if that's what you're asking, or a personal website. Are you on Twitter? I am not. I am on Facebook.
1: Your soul is probably better preserved because you're not on Twitter. Um, But yes, if if listeners want to learn more about Craig, you have a page on the Denver Seminary website and your email is there too. So what about you, Morgan? I have two. No, you can't have two. That's the rule. No. Nope. It's one favorite. I have two. I have a microphone here.
0: My Old Testament favorite book is Ecclesiastes because it just keeps it real. <laughs> and I find it really refreshing that there's space for cynicism in the Bible and skeptic and frustration with life and being burnt out. And all Are of you those Are you okay? Things, I'm quite all right. <laughs> I just remember feeling like, wow, I can find something that feels a little bit weary and not quote-unquote, on. must
2: be somewhere between a millennial and a Gen Xer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She's thoroughly a millennial. The other one, okay, I basically, I read, so in our magazine, we have a section called Reword, and it's where we have someone come and talk about particularly about the Bible or passage, and the Reword that we had this month was called How I Found Healing for My Spiritual Blindness. It actually is an even more amazing headline in print. I should find it. I think it was like, I was blind, but I'm still blind. But now I'm still blind. Exactly, which I thought was an amazing (laughs) headline. It says, Discovering Hope and Healing for Fallible Followers Through Jesus' Faithfulness in the Gospel of Mark. And Wesley Hill made this really, really great essay about how um, myopic the disciples really are in the Book of Mark and how over and over and over again they don't get it and how much he really resonated with that. And I read his essay and I don't know, I felt like I like learned a lot and appreciated. I a couple of years ago both the churches that I was attending did went through the book of Mark um at the same time. And I didn't necessarily pick on that as an overall theme, but I think there's something that's really powerful about people basically be more similar to you than you'd want to admit interacting with Jesus over and over again and the way that he both challenges them and also has patience. For them. I am on
1: Twitter at MEPAYNL. Well, I'm going to sound like an ESV reader, which I am from time to time. My favorite book of the Bible is the book of Romans because of how theologically dense it is. Every verse packs such a punch in terms of the implications of the gospel. I like that it's this extended argument that that has so much um coherence,
0: and there's like a lot of giant declarations, right? Like there's so much like therefore and whereas and yes. all these really great words, and they they show you that they're building an argument, and at the same time, there's also angst in it too. I like that there mm-hmm. I think there's like a good juxtaposition where Paul's like, "All right, so this is what's going on, and this is why it's difficult for me personally.
1: Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Even still, who can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ? I mean, there's so much declarative truth in it. I just love that it packs a punch. So I feel like I could go to Romans any day and find something to meditate Also, on. Romans
0: 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. I feel like it's just an amazing thing to like think about. I've thought about it a bunch of times. There's mm-hmm. a church near my house that has a sign and it'll flash that verse. And sometimes I'm just like in awe of it.
1: Yeah, it's Paul did good. I mean, the Holy Spirit did good through Paul is what I meant. So you can find me online at, I have a website, CaitlinBatey.com, and I'm also on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. And that is it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred, and special thanks as always to Kate Shellnut. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And if you like the show, as per usual, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us a whole lot. Thanks a lot. See you next week.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by just these guys, you know. A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at
2: justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?